0: Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
1: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to our second episode in our series on the doctrines of grace. I'm Austin McCormick here with one of my co-hosts, Dewey Dovell, and we are interviewing another one of our co-hosts, Jimmy Johnson, along with... A friend and multiple-time interviewee to the show, Ryan Pendergraf, who is a pastor in Osceola, Missouri, and we're going to be talking about unconditional election in this episode. So can one of you just speak to the ordering of the five articles of Remonstrance to help our audience understand why we're starting with you in our TULIP acronym?
0: Well, if you, you go back to the last episode where I enumerate both the five points of the remonstrance and then the response that you have at the synod of dort you see the order that they presented them in so we're just following that order in this series because tulip as an acronym is something that developed much much later than than when these major debates were taking place and though tulip sometimes can be helpful um, in terms of memorizing these these doctrines or, or, or speaking in a shorthand of way, we just want to cover it in a, a very clear scriptural way and show that you don't necessarily have to follow the order of to- TULIP itself to prove the doctrines of TULIP. You don't have to call it those things to affirm the doctrines that these, con- or these words are meant to re- represent. So that's kind of why we're going at it in this order.
2: Well, Jimmy, I appreciate you giving our listeners some clarification by way of getting our conversation started. And um, just as we begin diving into the doctrine of unconditional election today, I was just wondering if you would be willing to provide us with just a a straightforward definition for those who may be new to the doctrine of unconditional election or by way of review for those who are familiar with it. Could you give us a definition of doctrine itself and maybe some other labels that are commonly associated with the doctrine of unconditional election?
0: Yeah, so to do that, I'm going to quote um, both the Second London Baptist Confession and a few other of our Baptist forefathers as they sought to formulate and define this doctrine as as we understand it from Holy Scripture. So the Second London Confession, beginning in paragraph three of chapter three, it says, "...by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice." paragraph four, these angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. In paragraph five, those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose in the secret counsel of and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ an everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love with any other or without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause, moving him thereunto. So in those three paragraphs, you have this doctrine that is commonly called unconditional election laid out. Prior, the prior two paragraphs talk about the divine decree in general, and then the final these other paragraphs that I just read they they apply that to the nature of salvation or the work of salvation in particular. Um, another Baptist, um, a Southern Baptist in particular, John Dagg, he he says all who will finally be saved were chosen to salvation by God the Father before the foundation of the world and given to Jesus in the covenant of grace. And what he's likely doing there is becomes kind of a common practice amongst Baptists after Benjamin Keach. And that is they they somewhat combine both the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. But he he's a talking about the eternal decree of God to save those whom he has chosen. And then James P. Boyce he he writes god of his own purpose has from eternity determined to save a definite number of mankind as individuals not for or because of any merit or works of theirs nor of any value to him of them but of his mere good pleasure so in light of all of those both the confession and those two quotations Here's a working definition that I would provide. Though the term election and concept is used in a variety of of ways in Scripture, like the choice of Israel to be a peculiar people and the choice of individuals to some office or some special service, the doctrine of unconditional election is God's free and eternal choice of individuals for salvation in and through his Son jesus it is based on god's good pleasure and perfect wisdom and it includes both the ends and the means so i believe that hits all the bases that need to be had in in having a working definition of what is meant by this doctrine of unconditional election god has chosen a people individuals for salvation in and through his son jesus and it's based purely on his good pleasure and perfect wisdom, and it includes both the ends and the means. Amen.
1: Well, Jimmy has uh, defined this doctrine of unconditional election for us, and now we want to ask Ryan if you would spend some time demonstrating this doctrine for us in Scripture. Where do we get this idea? Where, Where can we look to in the Bible to develop this doctrine?
3: Well, I think that the doctrine of unconditional election is seen throughout the entirety of Scripture as a whole, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But some of the, uh, the texts that are, one, most familiar, then also most debatable will be those that come from Ephesians 1, Romans 9, uh, ones that, that all of us are probably, for the most part, uh, really familiar with. But just to give a, a few definitions of terms, whenever we talk about the word foreknowledge, as Paul uses in, in Romans 8, uh, a lot of people would, would like to, to think that foreknowledge is just that God knows things. Well, all of us would agree that God knows all things, but the term foreknowledge, as it's used in Romans, is to to know someone specifically to know them personally to know them specially it's to uh, set a a particular love upon somebody and those are the ones that God has foreknew for election for salvation uh, the term election is to choose is to to pick someone or something uh, the elect are a a group of those that God has chosen unto salvation. And then even, uh, you know, predestination is to decide something beforehand. And so election, first of all, is unconditional. It's it's not based upon anything that, that we have done. It is not merited by any works that we do. And we might I don't want to put the cart before the horse because we'll probably get into this later but a lot of the times when we when we talk about unconditional election the question that's always asked is well why would god choose some and not others and the question that we ought to ask is why would god choose any in the first place because all of us are evil and wicked and rebellious against god in our natural state and so, unconditional election is a necessity in that it is an election that is based completely and entirely on God's good pleasure, on God's, on God's will. And so, we turn to the Scripture, Romans 9, uh, verse 10. And I'm not going to read all of it, but because uh, it's 10 through 18. But Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebecca. Had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then you can study on in, in Romans in that very same passage. Uh, where Paul talks about a hardening that had come to Pharaoh's heart, that God uh, has compassion on those whom he'll have compassion. He hardens those whom he will harden. And Jimmy mentioned something about both the ends and the means, And, and he is absolutely correct, because in Scripture, it will talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is something that God does, but then it also talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And so the question is, well, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the answer to that would be that God hardened Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to be Pharaoh, by allowing Pharaoh to to continue in his, his natural state of rebellion against God, instead of choosing him out of that natural state and giving him salvation. And so Paul says that God hardened Pharaoh, God didn't choose Esau, Rather, God chose Isaac and he chose Jacob. Uh, Romans 11.2 talks about uh, the choosing of Israel by grace. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then verse 5 says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so uh, election is unconditional. There's nothing that we do to deserve it or earn it. It is based completely on God's grace. Second, election is eternal. So when did election begin? So by saying eternal, we're not necessarily referring to how long it lasts, but where was it began? And it begins in eternity. Uh, For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so our election takes place before the foundations of the world were laid. Romans 9 again uh, talks about before either Jacob or Esau were born, God had chosen. Jacob, and had rejected Esau. And so it takes place in eternity. And then election not only is... Don't
0: don't mind me interrupting you real briefly, but also Ephesians 1, 4, even going Mm -hmm. beyond that, election has taken place in the heavenly realm and things of that nature. But verse 4 goes on, even as he chose Mm -hmm. us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, Before him, so again, Mm -hmm. just supporting this idea that it is an eternal act and and not something that happened in time, but continue.
3: Well, and that was the next point that I was going to make is that God's election is not necessarily of a a a group of of people, as it were, as, as God chooses the nation Israel, as some would have understood. But according to what Jimmy just quoted from Ephesians 4, is that God's choice in election is the choice to choose an individual uh, before the foundations of the world were laid in order that they might be conformed into the image of Christ, that they would be holy and blameless. Uh, again, uh, another verse that I had quoted, Romans 8:29. God foreknew certain individuals and this is the Ordo Salutis, or the Golden Chain of Redemption, uh, because if you if you follow that verse, uh, it it looks like a kind of the links in a chain, if you will, that each of them are tied to the next, and which is why, for instance, God's foreknowledge in the context of Romans eight twenty nine cannot be that he just knows people in a general sense, because his foreknowledge is specifically tied to his predestination, to his calling, to his justification, to the glorification. And so those who God foreknows eventually will be glorified. And so there he has to be talking, I believe, about a very specific individual or a group of individuals that he has called to himself. Uh, Romans 9, uh, again, God's mercy is, is singular, it's indiscriminate, it's not, again, it's not based upon a certain race, nor is it based upon a certain gender, it is based uh, only on God's good choices, perfect will. And then, as far as individuals, I would also like to quote Acts 13, 48, which I have, um uh, Many times, to those who have, uh, who you know, been confused or have questions about unconditional election, you know, does God really choose individuals? And the answer is yes, He does. And, and Acts 13 48 uh, points to that fact that whenever the Gentiles hear the gospel, uh, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and then it says and as many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. And so you ask the question, who is going to believe the gospel? Well, those who have been chosen, who have been elect, those who have been appointed before the foundations of the world were laid, those are the ones who will believe the gospel. And then, as Jimmy stated earlier, election is only, since it is not meritorious, since it cannot be earned, It is only through Jesus Christ. And uh, Ephesians chapter 1 highlights that fact. Uh, Just It's point blank out in your face. This is what God has done before the foundations of the world was laid. This is what Christ has done by being the propitiation for our sins. And this is what the Holy Spirit has done by applying that salvation uh, to you. And so we see, and I could even make a, a point at this juncture that salvation is a Trinitarian act. It is the, you know, God's ordination. It is the Son's propitiation. It is the Spirit's application, if you will. And so, election is of individuals. Election is to salvation through Christ. Election is based, as we've said, on God's good pleasure. And election, as Jimmy had mentioned previously, includes both the ends and the means. That if God chooses certain individuals, what are we to do with the gospel? Well, we are to go preach the gospel to all people because that's what Jesus commanded. It is the means by which God saves his elect. In the same way, if God knows everything, why pray? Well, we pray because prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his will. And so there is the outward call of the gospel that is to go to all people. That is what we do as ministers. That is what we do as Christians. We share the gospel. And then there is the inward call by which the spirit effects grace in our life. And we are drawn to, to God through faith in Christ and we receive salvation. And then we receive justification, we are adopted into his family, and then one day, by the grace of God, we enter into glorification. So those are just a, a few references in Scripture that talk about God's love being, or excuse me, God's election rather, being unconditional, his, his election being of individuals for his good purpose and pleasure. Uh, and, and there are many, many more I'm sure that we could look at.
2: Absolutely. I think the testimony is clear from scripture, as you pointed to, Ryan, and from history, as Jimmy pointed to uh, just moments ago, that election is an unavoidable teaching of the word of God that Christians throughout all of church history have championed and surrendered to. Um, as Spurgeon put it in uh, one of his more famous sermons preached uh, in the middle of the 19th century, he said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen and there is no gift of it. So regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of Calvinist or Arminian, you have to deal with the doctrine of election. You can't ignore it or hide it under a rock or pretend that it doesn't exist. As you said, Ryan, it's it's there in your face from the earliest chapters of scripture all the way to the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. So election is a biblical doctrine that has been historically defended and historically articulated throughout the annals of church history. But as we all know, it's a doctrine that has considerable objections, particularly from those who are opposed to this idea of election being unconditional. Um, For those who would push back against the Calvinistic understanding of the doctrine of election, there are some pretty prominent objections that um, i think all of us are familiar with whether it be through our time serving in pastoral ministry or through uh, our exchanges with other people on social media or with family members or friends who are wrestling with the doctrines of grace there are many common objections to the doctrine of unconditional election and i just want us to spend a few moments uh, jimmy and ryan uh, as you guys feel led to share what are some of the more frequent objections that you've encountered when discussing the doctrine of unconditional election with others. This could be uh, either in the context of the local church, uh, in the Bible college or seminary, or it could just be with family members or friends that you've encountered on this subject. But I think it would be valuable for our listeners to hear um, how you've dealt with the common objections that you've encountered uh, as a uh, adherent to the doctrines of grace.
0: So... I'll start us off and I'll, I'll name an objection that's somewhat common and, and give kind of my short rebuttal to it. And then Ryan can add things as he sees fit or or Austin and Dewey can add things as as you two see fit. So one of the more common ones that I think Ryan and I have both faced from from a pastor in our our own vicinity um, or vicinity is that election is not of individuals, but of groups. So essentially, and Ryan mentioned this earlier, it's saying that God has chosen a general group of people, but not specific individuals. He has not distinguished one man from another, but he has this broad group. So he elected the church. Or they, they might say something like he elected Christ and all who would come and be connected to him, which is tied to another objection later. But that's Kind of how the objection goes. and and one of the obvious responses is, well, groups are made up of individuals, like <laughs> um, in order to have a group, we, you have to have individuals that make up that group. So yes, God elects a group of individuals in eternity past to salvation. I mean, of course, God has elected the church. The church is the chosen people of God, but who? is the church it is the people the individuals that god has chosen before the foundations of the world and and i mean god also chooses to let other groups of people remain in their rebellion some of the texts that that ryan quoted say just as much as that he he hardened pharaoh he he left esau to his own vices and i mean if we just even survey the panorama of scripture and, and look at God's choosing of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, it, it, it should raise this question, why on earth did God choose Abraham? Like, like why him? And why not some some guy named Ben who, who was in Ur of the Chaldeans? But he chose Abraham, or Abram, who he would name Abraham. And he he chose an individual, and Abraham would be the means through which the Redeemer, who would sh- who would be the one who saves all of the individuals that God has elected, but he chose Abraham as an individual to serve in that specific area. There's no if if we are allowing God to choose in that capacity an individual versus another individual, I don't see the problem in thinking that God also chooses individuals unto salvation. So that's. That's one way I would deal with that objection. Do you have anything to add, Ryan?
3: Well, I don't really have anything to, to add, but as we're talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, I think it's beneficial to understand. And I don't know where at least two of the other guys on this podcast uh, lean. I, I would have my assumptions, but I don't, believe in, in double predestination in which would say that God creates belief in some, and he creates unbelief in others. That one is uh, God works in in us, in the elect, positively by creating belief, but he doesn't work negatively in, in the other. But what he does is he leaves them in their unbelief. He doesn't choose them out of Their unbelief. So, as we're talking about Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart, uh, yeah, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but he he does so, as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, by giving them over to their own sinfulness and to their own own vices, by allowing them essentially to be who they are naturally as rebellious and and as enemies of God. Uh, The other objection that I've heard. Is uh, in fact members of my own family who, who have asked about Calvinism, have said, you know, election actually, it isn't of individuals to salvation, but it is of individuals to service. And you could use an example just like what Jimmy gave. Yeah, God chose Abraham, but what did He choose Abraham for? Well, if you're if you're coming from the standpoint of of God chooses individuals to service, well, God chose Abraham to be the, the father of a nation and God chose Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land God chose Joshua and, and and David and you you go on throughout the line these choosings that God does this choice that he has is of individuals to service and you could even go to John 15 in which Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them you did not choose me but I chose you and those same people would say you see there he's he's choosing them to be apostles he's choosing them to do a particular service well my my offer to that argument would be a counter offer i guess what i would say is is a, in the context of John 15 Christ isn't necessarily giving them a mandate as apostles as of as of yet. I mean he he is, but he's giving them instruction on what a disciple of Christ should be. For instance, in John 15 as we're talking about the vine and the branches and abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us, he tells them what all of us should be doing who name the name of Christ, and that is keeping the commands of God and having love for one another. And so as Jesus is preparing to die, what he's simply doing is giving his disciples finals and final instructions on what it means to actually belong to him. And so in his choosing of them, it isn't necessarily that he's chosen them for service, even though that's included. He has chosen them to be followers. He has chosen them for salvation. And you know, you even look at Romans chapter 9 as as Paul is uh, wrestling with this uh, idea of God's election and his uh, the the hardening that has come upon Israel. Uh, God is or Paul is extremely heartbroken. He's he he wishes, he says to to even give up his own salvation for the salvation of his brothers. And he's doing that for individuals. He's not saying, boy, I wish God would choose you to serve us. He's he's saying, I wish your eyes would be opened and that you would come to him uh, in faith and salvation.
2: Absolutely. And if I may just add, you know, one other common objection that I think we're all familiar with in pastoral ministry or just when interacting with people who struggle with the idea of unconditional election, that. Uh, and Paul addresses the anticipated objection in Romans 9, uh, the objection of, well, that's not fair. It's, it's not just mm-hmm. for God to freely choose to save some and freely choose not to save others. And as Ryan mentioned um, at the beginning of our discussion, the more appropriate question to consider when we think about the doctrine of unconditional election is not why did God choose to save some and not others, but why did God choose anybody at all? uh, in light of our sin and a lot of our, um, iniquity committed against him, you know, and I think the best way, and I think this undergirds Paul's argument throughout Romans nine, the best way of dealing with, um, objections like that is to remember that God is at the center of created reality. This is God's creation. He is on the throne. He is the sovereign ruling, reigning Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And as Paul says in Romans 9, um, he's the potter, we're the clay. He can do whatever he is, whether creating um, vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction or vessels of mercy that he has prepared to lavish his undeserved kindness and mercy and grace and redeeming love upon. Um, You know, in in the Old Testament prophets, time and time again, uh, particularly in Isaiah, I think of Isaiah 42 Um, 8 where god declares i will not give my glory to another creation this for the full manifestation of the glory of god and his attributes that are displayed in the salvation of the elect and the uh damnation or the just judgment of those who are non-elect or those who are of the reprobate as as the particular term is used and even in that exodus narrative that y'all were mentioning earlier you know in exodus 7 after moses petitions god uh for Aaron to speak on his behalf um when he goes before pharaoh god says to um moses that when he the, verse 3 of exodus 7 after Aaron goes to speak to pharaoh god says i will harden pharaoh's heart that i may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of egypt and when pharaoh does not listen to you then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. God is saying they will know who I am when I glorify myself through saving my uh, my people, Israel, and bringing about judgment upon the egyptians so even as early as the old testament um, and we've, we've belabored this point but god has always had a people he has always been just in choosing that people and preserving that people and he's always been just in the execution of judgment on those whom he has not appointed to save and that's only a problem if you make reality man-centered and not god-centered um, when, when god is able to be at the center of the story of human history and when god is able to be at the center of the creation that he has created and sustains by the word of his power there's no problem with allowing god to be god and choosing to glorify himself through the salvation of a particular people and the judgment of another people and god in doing all of that he remains he remains just in the execution of judgment but he remains gracious in the dispensation of salvation because as ryan pointed out from romans 11 none of us earned or deserved salvation if we could grace would no longer be grace so really the doctrine of unconditional election it's the ultimate pride crusher there there is no room for pride or for boasting or as those who believe this truth that there's no cause for us to look down our nose at those who have not yet come to terms with the biblical basis for this truth, because even our ability to understand the truth of unconditional election is an extension of the grace of God to give us to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to submit to the truths that are recorded in scripture on this subject. So um, as a pastor and, and as a Christian that interacts with family members and people who who claim, you know, it's just not fair that God would choose to save some and not others. We just have to gently and tenderly remind um, our friends who are either believers that don't hold to unconditional election or unbelievers who who reject the gospel and, and all of Christianity as a whole. We have to tenderly and gently remind them, my friend, God gets to be God, and we have to submit to what we build about himself in scripture, even when it's hard to do so. So I, I really appreciate <clears throat> your insights uh, on this on this truth and, and, and dealing with how you've um, counteracted some of the objections that you faced regarding the doctrine of unconditional election.
0: I do want to bring up one more objection. Oh, I had one too. Um, okay. And, and I, I wanted to also tie together some of the things that Ryan and Dewey both, both mentioned because Ryan talked about double predestination. Dewey talked about reprobation. Um, Sometimes that's called equal ultimacy—that God's act in predestining some to salvation is identical with His act of predestining others to damnation—and and truth be told, um, if if we're talking about unbelief, God predestining unbelief. Um, there is problems with that because sin, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about in some episode later, and perhaps when we interview someone on reprobation, they, they'll, they'll set us all right um, if, if we're all wrong. But sin is a, pref- a privation of good, and, and God is complete and perfect being. Therefore, it's metaphysically impossible for God to do something that would be non-being, and unbelief is just a non-thing. It it is a corruption of something that exists. It is, and therefore God cannot be the the efficient cause of it. Um, So that's important to remember. That, and that's one of the reasons why most in the Reformed tradition have rejected equal. ultimacy now there are some that affirm it and and would disagree with me and i think they're brothers and i i think they're just as within the reformed pale as as i am if not more because i'm a baptist and not not trademark reformed um but also the other objection that i want to deal with and i think this one's really really common especially when you're dealing with people of at least a little bit of learning or a lot of learning. Um, Other pastors in your area, things like that. And that is that election is not unconditional, but based on foreseen faith or obedience. So that is another common one that we don't want to miss. Do you want to add something, Austin? Well, as you begin to
1: speak to it, my objection is very closely tied up with the one you're raising. So I want you to handle both of them at the same time, if you will my objection that I was going to raise was some people that aren't as studied will say that God elects everyone. Oh, yeah. So although those things aren't exactly the same, um, would you you do Mm -hmm. the one you just brought up and then the one that I just mentioned?
0: Yeah. So the one that I brought up, election is not (coughs) unconditional, but based on foreseen faith or obedience. Often they will cite Romans 8.28, um because foreknowledge predestines the word or precedes the word predestination so they'll go to that and say see god looks down the corridors of time he looks in the future at an action that will take place a response to faith or something of that nature and then it's based upon seeing that in the future that god chooses that person he elects them and therefore election is conditional um But is that exactly what Romans 8.28 is teaching? Is is what the Bible means by foreknowledge foresight? Like they sneak in a different concept when they're doing that. They're sneaking in foresight and replacing the word foreknowledge with foresight. They're assuming that those are synonyms. Um, However, that's not the way God's knowledge works. Like period. God... God knows within himself all things. <laughs> he, he doesn't know things. He's not a creature like us looking at something and discovering things ever. Uh, he just knows things. Period. Um just as by nature of being God, he knows Everything he is not dependent upon the creature. So by trying to sneak that in, they're they're even actually making a subtle or or an unintentional and unwitting assertion that God in some way is dependent in his knowledge upon something outside of himself, which in reality makes God a creature and and not not God. Not to say that everyone follows those things to their logical end, um, but. By holding to that, they are sneaking in and, and really imputing creaturely attributes to the God who is not a creature. He is the creator. And plus, as we said before, the word foreknowledge in Scripture does not mean foresight. It means to foreordain or set one's love upon someone. To foreknow someone is to choose them beforehand. It, they are synonyms. Um, the God's foreknowledge of an individual leads to his predestinating them to a certain end, because that's how Romans 8, 28 is, is utilizing that, that language predestined to be conformed to the, that's Ephesians one, to be conformed to the image of Christ or to be sanctified. But God's foreknowledge is a choosing of that person beforehand. And those whom he has foreordained or foreknown, not foreseen, of course, he knows what they're going to do in the future, um, as he has decreed it, but he's not dependent upon them for that knowledge. And so he justif- he calls them, he justifies them, and he glorifies them based upon his foreknowledge. Um, as to the other objection, that God elects everybody, I honestly think that no Orthodox Christian like means that. When they say it, um, because we we know that if God elected everyone unto salvation in the same way, like you'd at least have to make a distinction, um, in the same way, that means that everyone is saved, like everyone will be saved no matter what you do,
3: like like, like we can. Oh, that takes it. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. You fish.
0: Oh, I. I, I was I, just I gonna. What I was, I was gonna just... say.
3: Oh well, sorry. I, I think a lot of the objection that Austin raises uh, comes from a, a misinterpret in misinterpretation of of verses which which indicate that God's desire is for everyone to be saved, you know, and therefore you know all people are are elect, as as he put it. Uh, for instance, Paul says in First Timothy chapter 2, that that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But we also have to define the word all throughout Scripture, right? That, uh, well, for instance, whenever Jesus tells his disciples that you'll be hated by everyone, did everyone literally hate the disciples? No, neither does all mean all in every context. For instance, in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul is urging Timothy to make supplication and prayer and intercession on behalf of all kinds of people for uh, for kings and those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. So whenever God desires all people, it's in that context of God desires that all kinds of people, whether they are a king, whether they are a priest, whether they are impoverished, wherever they're at in life, or whatever circumstance they find themselves in, God desires people to be saved. So most usually whenever I hear the objection, it's because of verses like that.
0: I think it was R.C. Sproul that wrote that by all, it does not mean all without exception but all without distinction something to that that nature um in yeah. that god's election does not distinguish between specific types of people but it includes all kinds of people in various um avenues and and areas and statuses in life um and and yeah i think what you're getting at and by quoting that passage i do think that is why some people do go to that objection rather than assuming that They're they're they have ill will in going there. Perhaps they've they've read those passages and that's just puzzled them. I mean, there's one in Ezekiel where God does not desire the death of the wicked, we have to interpret that. Um, but that's for another time. But those are some of the most common objections and how we might deal with them.
1: Well, let's transition a little bit from objections to devotional. Um, this this episode is not meant to entirely be polemical. We've given a positive presentation of the doctrine of election. Ryan has. We've given a historical definition. Um, We've talked about some objections, but I mean, why does this matter so much to us? Are we just a bunch of angry people who have this knowledge of scripture that nobody else has, and we just want everyone else to have this knowledge, and we're going to beat them over the head until they get it? Or are there actually some some practical devotional applications of the doctrine of unconditional election that matter in our walk with Christ that encourage us in our walk with Christ what would what would you say jimmy
0: so i mean a few ways or or even several ways a a christian might respond or should respond to the doctrine of election is that They should rest in God's wisdom, love and goodness by not delving into endless speculation. Um, Even even our confession of faith will talk about how the doctrine of predestination is a deep mystery to be handled with care. Um, So even as we're talking about the doctrine of unconditional election, not one of us in this room claims to have all of the ins and outs and particulars figured out. We are, we are still learning, and there are aspects about the divine decree as it is an internal act within God that we will never be able to comprehend um, because God in himself is incomprehensible. We can apprehend what he has revealed, but we can never contain and comprehend him in his, his fullness, um, so basically, by affirming the doctrine of unconditional election, we should just respond by resting in what God's word has said. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to search things. But at the end of the day, if you don't find your answer that you, you, you want, that doesn't mean the answer is not there. And, and perhaps you're even asking the wrong question. Also, we can respond by joyfully and believing um, all that God reveals concerning this doctrine. Um, in terms of missions and church planting and evangelism, the doctrine of election um, is a joyful doctrine because we know that our labors in preaching and teaching and evangelism and planting churches and discipling people, none of it's in vain. God has a people. One thing that I, I pray oftentimes during my pastoral prayer is we have an unreached people group of the week, and and I pray that among that unreached people group, I acknowledge that, God, I know you have a people among this tongue and tribe, and I pray that in the near future, labors would be sent, a church would be planted, and your name would be praised in that tongue and tribe. And I know that God will answer that prayer, because in the last day, when we all sing to, to our God and our Redeemer, there will be a people of every nation, tongue, and tribe, a people who God has chosen before the foundations of the world, and, and let us rejoice in that. Also, when, when considering this doctrine and, and perhaps doubts and despair come to the mind or heart, we, we should pray that God would help us to trust Him. I mean, there are even i wouldn't say paul was uncomfortable with the doctrine of election he clearly taught it but you can even sense in in romans 9 10 and 11 that there is elements of his heart breaking as he's contemplating that some of his fellow kinsmen will not be redeemed like he 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 understands that that is going to happen um and truth be told some of us have to wrestle with that own truth in our lives. We have family members we love. We have people we know. We know there are people among the nations that don't trust in Christ. People we care deeply about. And you know, in those times, it's perfectly fine to pray and and to ask for God's help. To ask, it's okay to pray for the salvation of any person um, because we we do not know who the elect are. Um, And we do not live based upon the secret will of God, but rather the revealed will of God in his word. And we seek to obey that. And And then finally, we just need to give God all the credit is due him for our salvation from beginning to end. It is a work of God. As I believe Ryan quoted the passage from Jonah 2 last time we talked, how salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, I mean, Brian will make fun of me and my, my constant alluding to the book of Ephesians, but I mean, from beginning to end of that book, one thing that you have to draw out is that salvation is purely and entirely a work of the triune God. To him be the glory. Blessed be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the Father has, has arranged salvation. The Son has accomplished salvation in the Holy Spirit is applying or has and and does apply salvation to those who the father has arranged and the son has accomplished redemption for so i mean in the end we should just give god the credit that is due his name
2: amen you know i think of um the puritans and and so many other from the broader Reformed tradition that would point to the doctrine of election as being a source of rich comfort for all believers. Um, in fact, J.I. Packer puts it in that way. He says election is the rich comfort, the source of rich comfort for all believers. And it should encourage all followers of Christ that their final salvation does not depend on their obedience or on any of their merits, but on the guarantee of God's unchangeable purpose. So I pray that'll be an encouragement to all of our listeners as they hear our conversation and uh, to those who are struggling with this with this topic of unconditional election, my prayer for you particularly is that you will see this doctrine um, as a source of comfort, something to be embraced warmly uh, and something to be enjoyed as a co-heir in Christ. We've enjoyed a wonderful discussion today so far with Jimmy and Ryan on the doctrine of unconditional election. and. Uh, Just as we prepare to wrap up our time today, I want to give both of you men the opportunity to refer our listeners to any resources that have helped you better understand this biblical uh, doctrine and really uh, maybe has... Helped you get over the hump, so to speak, where where you may have struggled with this for a season, and uh, a resource uh, other than Scripture allowed you to to see this doctrine in a more clear light, and uh, you would be um, led to share that with our listeners, perhaps um, as we prepare to wrap up this conversation. So I guess we'll start with Ryan, and then Jimmy. If you have anything you'd like to share, you can piggyback off of, uh, of off of just that Ryan feels led to share with our listeners.
3: Okay. Well, for me, as I said in the last podcast, the the eye-opener uh, as far as coming to the doctrines of grace was Jonah, uh, chapter 2 that Jimmy had, uh, commented on. Then after that, man, I, I had to do some some research, uh, and really I, I went to people that I once despised. You know, I, I went to John Piper, I went to... R.C. Sproul, these, these bad guys, uh, as I used to refer to them as. And I would say that, that for me, if I were to offer just two resources, uh, because most of my knowledge has come from systematic theologies, and I'm sure that most people listening don't want to go out and, and buy those and, and read those. Uh, so for devotional-type reading that will give you knowledge uh, pertaining to this uh, doctrine, R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, uh, was, you know, it, it, it was the eye-opener that I needed. It articulated uh, the objections that we've all mentioned, and he deals with those very gracefully and uh, understandably. Uh, he, well, what what I like is is in the book. He actually critiques some of the acronyms in tulip, or the the letters in the acronym tulip. Uh, for instance, as he talks about total depravity, he calls it radical depravity, meaning that man is not incapable of doing any good. It's just any good that man does is tainted by sin, and so things like that that he helps to really. Uh, unpack and, and let the uh, the reader understand uh, what tulip actually what it actually is and and i would also recommend the holiness of god um, because whenever it, it comes down to unconditional election or or any of the doctrines of grace for that matter it's rooted in a sovereign god who is holy it is rooted in psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And all that he does is holy because God by nature is holy and and we are not. And so those resources have been such a, a wonderful help to me in, in, for one, understanding the nature of God, uh, in the holiness of God. I understand that he is holy. I understand that I am unholy and unrighteous, and therefore a holy God has to act first, that I can't act on him, he has to act. On me, and then the uh, the chosen by God kind of uh, flushes out what that action of God looks like in our lives, bringing us to, to faith in Christ.
0: So I'll, I'll offer a few resources. I, I echo the ones that, that Ryan has, not because I've read them, but because I trust Ryan, and I also—what I have read of R.C. Sproul, I've truly— truly admired the content that he has put out. Um, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't mention some old dead Baptist um, for my recommendation. So Abraham Booth's The Reign of Grace um, has a chapter on the doctrine of election that is that is very helpful and, and devotional in the way that he wrote it. Um, Andrew Fuller's The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. He he gets into unconditional election and also talks about how it includes both the ends and the means. John Gill, The Cause of God and Truth um, is a very, very long work that that deals with many objections it deals with hard biblical text he he even has an entire section devoted to show how the early church fathers held to to or or at least articulated a doctrine very similar to that of unconditional election as well as he deals with all of the five points and then and then some also some more material in addition to that but and then in terms of just historical studies, um, By His Grace and For His Glory by Tom Nettles um, is a, a excellent work on the doctrines of grace within Baptist life. Another book that's helped some members of my congregation, and, and from what I've read, I've read a majority of it, but The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine, and I n- never know how to pronounce his name's Botner. Or Bootner. Um I've heard Betner. Um, he he actually lived near where Ryan and I lived for a long time and some members in my church. That was the um, book that convinced me
1: of the doctrines of grace, by the way. Keep going.
0: Yes. Yes. So that that would be one that I've heard is immensely helpful. And when I've read it, it is a very good, very biblical and and sound treatment. Um and really that's I could go on and on about resources that people could read. I mean, there's Deity and Decree would be another one by by Samuel Rennahan. We interviewed him on that one. Um, but it would be one that's worth whatever you pay for the book, just for the portion on Decree. The rest of it's great, too. But it, it really gets into some of these things. Um, James Dolazal has has an article um that deals somewhat with the nature of the problem of evil and, and 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 predestination decree providence so there are lots of good resources out there some are more accessible than the others i'd start with rc sproul um or or Butner or lorraine Butner. i'm just gonna say lorraine on um the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, and then delve into some of those historical resources. Abraham Booth's is pretty accessible, The Reign of Grace, and I believe there are some um, modern reprints of it that can be found. So I would I would recommend those.
2: It's been a joy talking to each of you today and to continue our series on the doctrines of grace. To our listeners, we hope that you'll join us next time on the Covenant podcast. And until then, we wish you grace and peace.